So I had a revelation this week, which is not a word that I use very frequently because that's a pretty powerful word. Um, <clears throat> but I gave the message last week that was about listening to other people, right? Letting them derail you from your purpose, from your BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal, your BHAG. We looked at the Torah portion last week to illustrate that, right? They were, they were headed for the promised land and the complainers started doing what they do. And the next thing you know, even Moses was derailed from his purpose and was begging God to kill him. That's what was happening. And I talked to you last week about not letting them get you down. And that was it. And that was the message. It's a one-parter. No continuation. That's it. I had moved on in my mind. So in my office, I was preparing this week's message. I was sitting at my desk, at my desk, looking out the window, thinking, and then I saw this. That's my window. And the revelation dropped. Again, a dramatic word. But that's what it was. I only told you half the story last week. That was what I realized. I told you what they do, the complainers, the grumblers, <coughs> the BHAG derailers. And I told you, don't let them get you down. But there's a whole nother side of that story. I didn't equip you. I didn't give you any practical tools or awareness of how to actually combat that, which is probably the most important part. So welcome to the unplanned part two. Who are you listening to? Perfectly, though, perfectly inspired as usual by the Torah portion we read this week, which is Shalach. And who gets sent where? spies into the land. Because without what I'm going to teach you today, you will never succeed in not letting them get you down. You will never be able to do it. That's a big statement. Now listen, to say what I'm going to stand up here and say, I probably should have a PhD in psychology or some like clinical practice. I don't, so I have to be careful. I'm going to rely on 50, almost 51 years of life a lot of Bible study, and a lot of ancient and modern wisdom that I have collected through the years, and a lot of life experience. But here's the thing. To teach you how to really be the best version of yourself and to battle the enemy that will take you out of this game completely, and I'm not talking about death, but when you succumb to the tactics of this enemy, you're as good as dead, Last week was about the people around you, but there's a worse dream killer. There's a worse goal crusher. There's a worse happy life killer. And it's way worse than them because it's you. And it's inside your head. Let me explain the video. Darren, restart that video for me, please. Let me explain this and what it showed me. This is the interstate. This is my window. Those are cars. And that little tiny space right there 
is what I can see of the interstate from my car window when I'm sitting in my office. I can see those cars going by at 80 miles an hour. This is also a picture of your mind. The interstate is your mind. The cars are your thoughts. And that tiny little space is the level of perspective that we often have regarding our thoughts. Now let me explain. Let me ask you, how many thoughts do you have in a day? Thousands. There's no way to scientifically figure that out. There's no great answer, but thousands that come speeding into your brain from anywhere and everywhere, from input sources, your own, from your own random generations of pondering everywhere, and you have very little control over them. You cannot possibly tell me what you're going to think next. And I can tell you to think something, and then you'll think about it, and where will your thoughts go from there? No one knows. Like those cars speeding by 80 miles an hour or higher, that's our brain. Awake, alert, thinking thoughts constantly. And when those thoughts are positive, good thoughts, constructive, productive thoughts, we're in a good place. Even when we have a negative thought, when we let it pass by like one of those cars, Literally, in the blink of an eye, through the bushes in the video, when we allow our negative thoughts to just be, to be, and to accept them as reality, but then let them move out of our mind, we encounter them as briefly as that car going by that little tiny space. And we are in a good space when we do that. You can stop that video. But that is not our tendency. Instead, we grab a thought, particularly from those input sources that are negative. We grab it. For example, someone makes a critical comment about you, and in your mind, the thoughts start speeding down your brain's interstate highway or our assumptions, our preconceived biases, rather than considering that we have those and that this thought may be emerging from absolutely wrong information and have no relevance, that this thought may be absolutely illogical, irrational, instead of recognizing that it is one of a hundred speeding cars a minute passing down the interstate, we grab it. And we hold on to it. Like, imagine, like me going out to the side of the interstate, grabbing one of those cars. I have a rope, a chain around my waist. It's tied securely. On the other end is a super-powered electromagnet. And I run to the side of the interstate, and I wait. And when one comes, I throw the magnet. Clang! <laughs> And where am I? Being dragged 80 miles an hour down the interstate by something I have no control over and had absolutely no idea where it's taking me. I'm out of control. I've completely lost it. 
My friends, this is too often our life when it comes to our thoughts. And I can talk every Shabbat for the next five years about being the best version of yourself and don't let them get you down and put your head down and keep pushing. But until we master our thoughts and the power and control that they have over our happiness and the lives we live, we'll never succeed at being the people we want to be or the people God wants you to be. and we will miss blessing after blessing. And this Torah portion, Shalach, it's my favorite psychological Torah portion because what I'm describing to you is exactly what we see happen. Exactly. Send agents to scout the land of Canaan. I'm gonna talk for a little while today, is that okay? Send agents to scout the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelite people. Send one participant from each of their ancestral tribes, chieftains among them, by Adonai's command. Send agents to scout the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelite people. That's how it starts. That was the fact of the matter. I am giving this to you. Do this thing. It's gonna happen. And at the end of 40 days, they returned from scouting the land. They went straight to Moses and Aaron and the whole community. They made their report. This is what they told him. We came to the land you sent us to. It does indeed flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. And there's your brain. However, however, the people who inhabit the country are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw Anakites. We saw Anakites there. Caleb is watching this happen. Caleb, the master of his thoughts in this situation, is watching it happen. And he says, no. He hushed the people before Moses and said, let us by all means go up and we shall gain possession of it, for we shall surely overcome. But the other men who had gone with him said, we cannot attack that people for it is stronger than we. They spread calumnies among the Israelites about the land they had scouted, saying the country that we traversed and scouted is one that devours its settlers. All the people that we saw in it are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The Anakites are part of the Nephilim. And we looked like grasshoppers to ourselves and surely to them. So we must have looked to them. Why? 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 Look at the presumption that's occurring here. First, the country is one that devours its settlers. How do we know that? Where'd that come from? Second, they don't know how they looked to those people. How many people struggle with what people think about them because they create a perception in their minds we look like grasshoppers and surely they thought we were. That's not real. People were afraid of Israel. Just talk to Rahab in the, in the Haftorah portion this week. Israel had a reputation. God had done fantastic, amazing things for Israel. What is that? Why did they do that? Because the cars were racing down the interstate, then they threw their super-powered electromagnetic on. And they got dragged. And from that limited perspective, from that 
little hole in the bushes. Literally, maybe they saw them through a little hole in the bushes and said, oh my gosh, look at those big people. Their inner thoughts created a story from that limited perspective. The people are big and that ruined everything. And that never had to happen. This was avoidable. But their thoughts, yes, they saw big people in the land. That was a fact. That was a real input source. That happened. That was real. There are big people there. There, there are big people. There are big people there. OMG, there are big people there. You know what that means? You know what that means. We're doomed. We're done. We can't take this land, and you know what'll happen if we try. You know what'll happen if we try. They're gonna take our women and children. They're gonna, we're gonna be grasshoppers. These are the princes of Israel, the mighty men who are now grasshoppers went from leaders to grasshoppers, where? In their own mind. Nowhere else. And they told everyone. And everyone allowed their thoughts then to create a scenario that would have never happened. Why is God taking us to the land to fall by the sword? Where does it say that? Our wives and children will be carried off. It would be better for us to go back to Egypt. Yes, that's it. We, we, let's go back to Egypt. It was so great. Let's go back to Egypt. We, we got to go back to Egypt. I'm being dramatic for point. This is our life when we allow the people I talked about last week to significantly impact our thoughts. Is there a time for counsel and listening? Absolutely there is. That's not the point. When we let a thought lead us down the road and build scenarios and hypotheticals around it, often from the through the bushes limited perspective, from a thought that pops into our mind or one that's planted there by someone else, when our thoughts have free reign, we lose the broader perspective of life. Like that hole where I could see this car, this car. It's like assuming that when I see that car for a millisecond passing through there, that I can construct an entire story of the people within that car. They're from here. They're going here. Why are they driving that fast? They're probably having a fight with somebody in the back seat. Where are they going? How, 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 what will they do when they get there? How long have they been driving there? How fast are they? I mean, from that, it's impossible. I saw them for less than half a second. That's, that's something that, that's sometimes what one thought can do instead of realizing that we might only be seeing the issue from the tiny hole. But sometimes we don't even need, and this is the amazing thing, sometimes we don't even need a negative input source to take us down this road. We do it to ourselves. I talked to you last week about a concept called foreboding joy. I'm familiar with it through psychologist Dr. Brene Brown, who spent a lot of time researching shame and, 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 and uh, foreboding joy. It refers to our tendency to sabotage moments of joy 
by anticipating and preparing for potential disappointment or loss. You hear that? The feeling of unease or anxiety that arises when we experience moments of true joy, instead of fully embracing and savoring these moments, we instinctively anticipate and fear their eventual loss or disappointment. We can't be happy and present. Foreboding joy is a mechanism we employ to shield ourselves from vulnerability and potential pain. We try to numb ourselves or prepare for the worst as a way to avoid being caught off guard by negative outcomes. We blow, ju just like we blow tiny, small worries or random thoughts out of proportion, we do the same sometimes with joy in our own lives. We catastrophize and imagine worst case scenarios that all undermine our ability to fully embrace those moments. And positive outcomes, listen, the land was before them. They were there. Look, we've arrived, here's the land. But what if the people kill us and take our children? This is not to say that we don't think or plan, but we do it with rationality and mastery of our thoughts. But what's really amazing about foreboding joy is that there is a reality. There's a tangible thing, a tangible good thing that's here, right in front of you. You've just experienced it. And you create a false reality. For instance, I just got a raise. Well, mazel tov. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the boss doesn't really like me. That I'm, I'm convinced the boss doesn't like me. And I'm probably what's going to happen here is I'm, he's going to start watching me more because they're paying me more. I'm going to have to like probably work later hours now. He's going to be looking for reasons. And if I'm having to be forced to work here late, I mean, what's going to be happening at my house? My wife's going to be incredibly unhappy. You know where this is probably going to end? My wife's going to leave. My kids will be on the street. <laughs> you just got a raise, man. My daughter's getting married. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, well, but, but what, if, what if the guy is not who he presents himself as? What if he does something to her? Because I'm going to tell you something. If he does something to her, I will show up at the doorstep. I will break that door down and I will go in and I will hurt him. But what? What if I punch him in the face and he falls down and hits his ear on the corner of a piece of furniture right behind there where he dies? And then I go to jail and I can't see my kids. Your wife's your daughter's getting married, man. <laughs> Dramatic for point. Maybe we don't allow our thoughts to take us that far. But I assure you, for many, many, many people, they are being dragged down the interstate daily connected to an 85-mile-an-hour semi-truck. They have no control. They have no thought awareness, and they are ruled by thoughts and fears they've created that probably will never happen. Michelle de Montaigne, 
My life has been full of terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. The best version of you is not the version who controls your thoughts. That's not possible. I can't control the cars that are passing down the interstate. I have no impact. You can't control your thoughts. But the best, most happiest, successful, productive, high-powered disciple, example to the others, the best version of you is not the controller of your thoughts, but the master of them. The master, it's the you who with thousands of thoughts coming from external and random sources can recognize that as Kelly Eisner once told me, thoughts are not facts. If you're thinking of two plus two and that's four, that's a fact. That's not what I'm talking about. Most of our thoughts are not facts. And I don't need to waste time going, hitching myself to those thoughts to drag me down the road to a destination I never wanted to visit. The context is, of course, different, but the idea, the statement that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians, it's so famous. We take every thought captive and make it obey the Messiah. It's, it's, again, different context, but it's a fundamental truth of life, that statement. We take every thought captive, that when you do that, when you master your ability to manage and direct your thoughts away from the hypotheticals to the reality, you become someone new. And here's the promise I can give you. You ready for it? If you don't take your thoughts captive, they will take you captive and take you where you don't want to go. It's not a mysterious power. Well, man, you, you, where's God in this? Well, let me tell you something. God can't do this for you. God can't. It's your task. Anyone remember He-Man and the Masters of the Universe? It's one of my favorite cartoons when I was growing up. If you're, if you're my parents' age, you remember it because your kids watched it. If you're my age, you remember it because you watched it. And He-Man, he used to have, remember what he'd do? He'd take his huge sword and he would hold it up and go, by the power of Grayskull! And then... I have the power, remember it? Randomly in my thought mind, I'm thinking back to He-Man when I'm talking about this and I say, by the power of my skull, <laughs> I have the power to master my thinking. God can do so much for you and he will strengthen you and he will push you along and he will be your advocate and your, your best guiding force. But what can he do when you latch to the interstate cars and you keep on doing it? What can he do? It's your task. 
no matter what the spies are saying. It's a, it's, it's a discipline. You want to be able to lift your sword and say, I have the power? It's a discipline. It's a discipline every single day, sometimes minute by minute, sometimes second by second. If you are descending into a thought whirlpool vortex, it's an awareness to say, no, 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 by the power of my skull. I have the power and the spirit that is within me, which is really where the power comes from. And there could not be, I promise you, my friends, when I start yelling and pointing fingers, I promise you there could not be a more self-directed message than this one to me. In my world of being in front of people and interacting with people and having to present myself as perfect and all these other things which I abandoned a long time ago, I am so easily led down the interstate of negative thought. So I'm not shouting at you, we're sharing in this, this is my life. And it's your life, I'm certain, at times. And I know that whether or not you want to admit it, most people have spies kinds of lives. I mean, you look around and you say, yeah, it's good, it's really good. But, however, however, or, or what did they mean by that? What, why did they say that? What, what do you think they meant? What, well, it's not helpful. So I'll task you. Examine your thoughts and ask yourself, before you construct a false reality, you ask yourself two questions. Is there a real factual basis for what I'm thinking or feeling? Am I hitching myself to a car traveling 80 miles down the interstate and getting dragged somewhere? Ask that question first. At least, if anything, breathe and think. And if the answer to that is, Yes, there's something. If it is a real worthwhile consideration, then you ask yourself, what can I do about it? Do I need to do something, change something, address something, take an action? And if so, decisively take the action and be done. Take control of your life. For God's sake and your own. <laughs> If there's nothing you can do, let the car speed on down the road. I promise there's another one right behind it. The people of Israel were afraid. And so are most people who are controlled by their thoughts. They're afraid. It's not a criticism. Now, I'm not talking about psychological disorders and different things. There are clearly exceptions to what I'm saying. I'm talking about for most of us with a, with a normal, rational mind, right? Fear, fear, there's a vicious cycle. When we live in fear of criticism, of failure, of the opinions of others, of measuring up to others, even of pain, of suffering, of loss, this vicious cycle occurs where fear then affects your thoughts, which build more fear, which affects your thoughts, which, ooh, ooh talk about a vortex. The thought-fear vortex. Somebody write that down. I'm going to come back to that another day. I like it. 
again, Michel de Montaigne, great philosopher, a man who fears suffering is already suffering from what he fears. That's good, but I have a favorite Rabbi, Rebbe Nachman quote. It's a, it's a very famous Jewish summer camp song, but it's a, it's a lifeline for mindfulness. The whole world is a narrow bridge, but the essence is to not be afraid. The truth really, really is summed up best by Yeshua. He was the master teacher. Don't worry, he said. Think about that line. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough surus, has enough difficulty of its own. Think about that line. It, if you really think about it, it's not very helpful. It's not very, like, it does, it's not real encouraging, but it is. Don't ignore the fact. Don't, don't ostrich, ostrich head yourself. Don't ignore the fact that the world has trouble. And yet, don't be fearful or controlled by thoughts of what if. Tune in or miss out on the blessing of life that's occurring around you right now. The line between holding on and letting go is indeed, it's, it's very fine. Like we were talking about, second by second sometimes. It's a split-second decision, taking practice to become a master. But again, this is, you can call this quote central for this message. This is an anthropologist, Carlo Castaneda, who said, the trick is in what one, what in, the trick is in what one emphasizes. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves happy. The amount of work is the same. So I want you to remember that picture out my window. I want that to sink into your mind and become a permanent anchored thought. I want you to think about it. I want you to visualize that in your daily life and consider your thoughts over the next week. Evaluate them. Pay attention to what's going on in your space. Pay attention to your random thoughts. Pay attention to where your thoughts are taking you, especially when you find yourself lost in thought or being dragged down the road. Stop and ask Am I the master of my thoughts, or do they master me? And remember, He-Man, and Rabbi Nachman, and Michel de Montaigne, and Yeshua, and all of them, and this last one, who I love this guy, very non-traditional for a religious service, Eknath Eswaran, who was a Hindu meditation teacher who who, who loved all of the different religious cultures. He wrote two commentaries on Yeshua's writings and teachings. But he says, a calm mind has great power. It generates calm around it, a field of peace in which anger, fear, and violence subside. By learning to calm the mind, each of us can become an instrument of peace for you and for others. Who wants it? Everybody should want it.
and know that God has given us the power to be the master of our thoughts. I can't emphasize it enough. The ability to not let them get you down and live the best life you can imagine is contained within that ability. So, may God strengthen you as you strive to live the abundant life which we were promised in Messiah Yeshua under the guidance of the, po of the power of the Holy Spirit and of you being the master of your thoughts. Happy Father's Day, guys. Shabbat Shalom.